Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? That was good. Very good. I want to say a big welcome this morning to those of you that are here from the CU Church Search, especially if that's you this morning and you're out looking for a church in Belfast. It's our prayer really that you do, whether it's us or it's another church um, that, that you will visit over these, these coming weeks. Uh, it's our prayer that as students who come to Belfast, you might be students who really settle in, knuckle down. Uh, and belong to a church in this city. So uh, I hope today, go, I mean, I hope it's us. I hope it goes well. But if it's not us, right, bless you. We really, we really do hope you find a church that you can call home in Belfast City Centre. So if you weren't with us last week, okay, uh, Lydia just said we, you would have missed us kicking off a series that's going to take us from here right through uh, to the Christmas season. Sorry for mentioning it already, okay, but we are digging into the Beatitudes, right? And as we found out last week, you know, it's like a thing that we would say an awful lot in the, in the church or you would hear people write or say, you know, that the Sermon on the Mount, you know, maybe the greatest words ever spoken, right? You would hear that said a lot. And then it turns out that they're, they may well be the greatest words ever, ever spoken. They're also very hard words, okay? So we kicked off last week um, as we were thinking about the first thing that Jesus had to say. Uh, and kind of the, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, all right, is really where, where Jesus is trying to speak into the formation of a people of contrast, right? Those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, okay, it's really Jesus trying to speak into a people who would become a people of contrast, set apart, different, distinct from the rest of the world and the values that they held. If you wanted the cheat sheet, right, the summary line of the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, in a way, is Matthew 6, 8, where it says, do not be like them. He's trying to make a people, form a people that are not like the values and the priorities and the practices of the rest of the world. Jesus' people are to be people of contrast. And then in the Beatitudes, which is what we're doing in this series, okay, Jesus is teaching into what the character of those contrast people might look like, okay? And there's lots about character throughout the Sermon on the Mount, but really uh, these verses in Matthew 5, they maybe especially speak to what is the character of these people of contrast. And so last week it was the poor in spirit, humble People at the end of themselves. Eugene Peterson would paraphrase it in the message like this. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. And as we found out last week, this word blessed, which runs through all of the Beatitudes, right? It's not blessed in the way that we maybe understand hashtag blessed in the world in which we live now, right? It's not the same thing, okay? It's not the same thing at all. And so this week, we move on to the second of the Beatitudes, and this is what we read. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the first thing I want to say, really, before I, I get into it, is just to say that, that these, the Beatitudes really was meant to be heard, not read the way we primarily receive these today. They were like, they were like short snippets that somebody might remember, okay? Eight Beatitudes as they make their way through. You might actually know them off the top of your head. Those who mourn, those who, uh, those who are poor in spirit, the persecuted, all, all of the sorts of things we're going to go through in the week that is ahead, in the weeks that are ahead. The sense that like these are things that are to speak to us, things that we could, we could repeat, okay? So one challenge, if somebody manages to do it by the end, if you're able to recite all of the Beatitudes to me, you will win a faith mission voucher, right? Let, let's go with something really holy, right? Faith mission voucher on me so that you can buy a Bible and recite more of it. Anyway, 
Paradoxes, right? Paradoxes are a really interesting thing, aren't they? Uh, one of my favorite ones that occurs regularly in my life, because I am married to a North Coast girl, right, is this thing that happens nearly every time that we'll talk about going to Coleraine, well, Joy will say, We're, I'm away down home. And you're like, you're categorically not going down, you're going up, right? And it seems it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, you're really young, or even her mom and dad will at times leave our house and say, well, we're away down home. And I'm like, no, you're not going down, you're going up, you're going in the wrong way, right? Or things like, one of the ones that gets me is reality TV. Now, I don't know if, you know, that is in and of itself a paradox, right? There is nothing real about the Kardashians. I mean, I don't actually know if there's anything real about them physically, but there's nothing real about the Kardashians. There's nothing real about Made in Chelsea. Nobody's lives are that scripted and look like that. So it is in and of itself a paradox to call it reality TV. It's not. Or one of my personal favorite Northern Irishisms, students are back in Belfast. I heard a student walking through the city center the other day using one of my favorites, mate, that's clean stinking, right? Doesn't work, right? Clean stinking. Now, I know there's a whole lot of English students in the room, right, and English grads, and their, curl, their toes are curling right now that I think I've read out oxymorons and not paradoxes, but get over it, right? It's the illustration, okay? Paradoxes, okay? Paradoxes. And the verse we just read today is the second beatitude. And it is perhaps the most paradoxical of them all. They are all paradoxes in a sense. They all say that something is blessed that we fundamentally in our lives, like we avoid with all that we've got, right? We don't want to be poor in spirit. We don't want to mourn. We don't see these things as things that would be, we'd say as blessed, right? None of us do. And yet Jesus says again and again and again of these things that they are blessed. You are blessed if you mourn. And perhaps this one is the greatest one of them all. Blessed are those who mourn, or as one translation would say it, happy are those who are unhappy. How is that possible? As we come to look at it, okay, today, right? That, the, the, just that one verse. How is that possible? I mean, really, right? Mourning is blessed, really. But that's what Jesus says. Uh, when Joe and I got married, we decided at that stage um, that we were going to wait a number of years before trying to start a family. Uh, and throughout that time, lots of our close friends, they did start families before us. And it appeared that I, by some, you know, how nature works, they were like one-hit wonders, right? They like got pregnant immediately. Now, I'm, I don't know that it was one-hit wonders, right? But that's what it felt like, okay? It felt like it happened really easily. And then Joy and I decided that, you know, time might be the time where we would start and we figured out that things didn't go quite as smoothly for us as it had done for them. And we were invited to lead worship at another church's church weekend. And as we went for sound check on that Friday night, we knew that we were pregnant. We knew Joy was pregnant at that time. And you begin, when that happens in your life, you begin to feel yourself beginning to hope, right? Expectations begin to form in your life. You begin to have a picture of what your next nine months is going to be like, what your life after that is going to be like. And so that's us going to this conference on a Friday night. As you can imagine, if you're going to lead worship, those are pretty good feelings to go and lead worship with, right? And then on the Saturday afternoon in the downtime uh, that was going on, before we had to go back for the rest of the sessions, we became aware that she was losing the pregnancy. And sitting at home, getting ready to go back there that night, just thinking, like, how on earth am I ever going to lead these guys in worship? 
how on earth am I ever going to get there myself? Like, how am I ever going to feel like I want to worship God? Like, I want to praise him and honor him and lift his name up. How can I, how could I ever do that? How could we do that? I just want to mourn. I just want to be on my own. I just want to bury myself. The last thing I feel like right now is praise and worship. And unfortunately for us, uh, for our own journey, that wasn't the only one. We lost quite a few. They were all very early when we lost them, but we lost quite a few. And there's a particular kind of sorrow that even at the birth of your second child, you get handed the paperwork, and amongst the things that you read is number of pregnancies, six, and yet you're walking out of the hospital with your second child. Mourning is rough. Loss and grief, it steals the air from your lungs loss of hopes and dreams, the loss of expectations about how you thought your life was going to be or where you thought you were going to go. It is a really isolating thing. It leaves you feeling distant from all sorts of things. And maybe one of those in particular is gatherings like this. It's gatherings like this. So I want to say today before we start, because I realize as we are pushing into morning today, I want to say as we start today, In a gathering of this size, there's almost certainly someone or some people struggling today just to be here. Like it's taken all of your energy just to be here today. And as we sing and we celebrate and we gather together through each of those times for us, church nearly always felt like the last place we wanted to be. Like every time we were kind of dealing with our own sorrow around this, church felt like the last place. I mean, people are so nice and encouraging and I just want to wallow, right? I don't want people to be nice. I want to be sad, right? So I just want to say as we start today that if that's you today and right now you find yourself mourning whatever it is, And to be honest with yourself, you feel pretty detached from what's going on in the room. It's requiring just all of your energy just to be be here today. Then I want you to know that I see you, that we see you. And if life looks more like the discipline of things than the joy of things right now, that we see you, that your presence and your discipline is important. Equally, I want to say to you today that if you came in here today riding high on the crest of a wave, excited about today's uplifting and exciting sermon, right? I want to say to you too that it's important that you're here too. It's important that you give of yourself wholeheartedly, celebrating your seasons of joy just as much as it is important for people that are in seasons of grief and mourning to give of themselves where they're at as well. I want to say to you that your presence and your discipline and your lifting of Jesus is really important too. And as for the uplifting bit, hopefully we'll get there in a little while, okay? But I think this is really important. I think this topic is massively important because mourning is part of the human way. No matter what way you want to cut it up, no matter how hard you want to run in the opposite direction, no matter how much you might believe, you're going to live forever and everything that you love and you cherish is going to be like it is now forever. The reality is mourning is part of the human way. We've all just come through the experience of the pandemic and lockdowns and an awful lot of psychologists now recognize that our collective experience of it was one of grief and mourning. That's how it's now being understood. Actual grief from lost loved ones, lost opportunities, that university experience that was nothing like they said it was going to be. Life just not how we imagined it to be. The Bible's songbook, the Psalms, it contains well over 50 Psalms of lament, suggesting that it's a big part of how we will and we should express ourselves before and to God. We should lament. We should mourn. We should grieve. It should be part of what makes us us. And here's the thing. 
Even in times where life is going great, things can change. Tim Keller uh, wrote this, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we've put together a good life, no matter how hard we've worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful in our career, something will inevitably ruin it. The reality is in this life, there are, uh, there are no guaranteed things in terms of work, career, and just our picture of the good life, doing good and all of that sort of stuff. Something inevitably will come. The author Brian Zand writes this, in a simple-minded, paper-thin, pseudo-Christian culture where banal happiness seems to be the highest goal, we don't want to attend to the work of grief. We put it off as an unpleasant task or something beneath our stations. So two things are true. You will experience grief and mourning in your life. And if we want to be deeply formed, we have to make our way through it. You can't put it off. You can't pretend it's not going to happen. You can't hide. Grief and mourning will be part of our lives. And we'll have mourning to do. And because we do, this beatitude is really for all of us. And the incredible thing, the incredible paradox is that Jesus says mourning is the way, is our way that we're blessed. A way to find a heart in harmony with itself. That kind of description of what blessed means. A heart in harmony with itself. So I just want to speak to two things today that flow from this beatitude, okay? And the first of those is mourning. And the second of those is a defiant hope. So the first of those things is mourning. And when you think about it, okay, mourning could be used to describe what is actually a really broad set of experiences, right? We often use the word mourning to describe a whole bunch of things. I feel like my wife mourns every time she gets to the end of a series of Stranger Things, right? I feel like there's like about a week of sadness, which happens afterwards, that it's over. Like she literally will come in every day and say, I'm so sad it's over, right? We mourn the end of a really good meal out, right? Oh, devastated that's finished, right? We mourn the end of our student years and things like that, don't we, right? Mourning can be quite broad and it can be quite kind of low level in many ways. But then we also mourn way more than just the trivial, don't we? We mourn the one that got away. We mourn a lost opportunity, that job, that house. We mourn at the loss of loved ones. And we mourn that, that things, we mourn about things that are going on in the world in which we live. Mourning feels like it's a really broad term, doesn't it? It covers a wide variety of experiences. And to a certain extent, when we read the second beatitude in both Matthew and Luke, Luke covers it too in Luke 6, okay? Um, the, the terms used suggest that it should be thought of as broad. Matthew uses the term those who weep. And Luke, you, or Matthew uses those who mourn. Luke uses you who weep, right? Mourning and weeping. Those are broad terms, aren't they? So what exactly is it? What are they getting at whenever he writes those who mourn? Well, the two main words in Matthew 5, okay, are the word pentheo for mourn and parakaleo for comfort. And these specific words, right, they appear in those spe- this specific context, like together in another passage in the Bible. They appear in Isaiah 61. And for that reason, much of the writing in this beatitude traces the meaning of it back to what Isaiah wrote. And this is what Isaiah wrote. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and the release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Parakaleo, pentheo. Those two words together again. 
only hundreds of years before Jesus would speak them. So what is it? Well, the first thing to say is that this is a passage which was speaking into Israel's exile and the experience of the exile would have featured all kinds of mourning, right? If you're displaced from your land, right, then there's all kinds of mourning that you'll feel. Foreign domination, loss of land, starvation, death, loss of home, broken covenant with God, to name just a few things that you might feel if that's you. But actually beyond the words of Isaiah, the whole Bible contains numerous references to mourning and weeping, to take the words Matthew and Luke use, right? Numerous references throughout the whole Bible. In other words, the experience of mourning that Jesus is blessing is broad. The experience of mourning that Jesus is blessing is broad. Now we don't have time to go through all of the references about those today, but I'm just going to pick three, okay? Three kinds of mourning today as we think about this passage. Three kinds of mourning. And the first of those is maybe the obvious one. It's mourning from loss or mourning grief, as we might call it. And perhaps it's the form of mourning and grief that we're most familiar with and also most terrified about. Losing somebody close to you is, uh, it tears you apart, doesn't it? It tears at you. It's a deeply moving thing. The depth uh, and tearing apart of life that death causes. And the example that we see possibly most vividly in the scripture is Jesus weeping over the death of Lazarus in John 11. And so there is this sense, okay, that if Jesus, even Jesus, felt the pain of the loss of another and mourned, that we too will know that feeling in this life. There's a sense that Jesus himself validates those feelings that you might be here today feeling or that you might have known in your life. And the Psalms too, the only mention of the word mourning throughout is for a mourning over death. So the experience of death and loss, grief, weeping, mourning is so much a part of the world as we know it that it is there obviously in the story of the Bible too. So the first type of mourning, maybe obviously, is the mourning from loss and grief. And then there's the second type, okay? And the second type of mourning is this mourning that the world is not all that it should be. There's a second type, and it's mourning that the world is not all it should be. And this one for me is the one that in the world of social media and 24-hour news comes, us, comes to us in measures that at times are overwhelming. At times we cannot take in all of the things that might stir these feelings of mourning within us as followers of Jesus. I mean, just in this last week, stories which have filled our news feeds, the ongoing chaos and pain of the cost of living crisis, coupled with OPEC plus decision to reduce oil production in order to drive up prices, right? That makes sense, right? The Indonesian football stadium crush where 131 fans died as police fired tear gas into a crowd causing a stampede and tragic loss of life. The effects of the Florida hurricane with 41,000 people displaced and the Thailand attack in which an ex-policeman killed 37 people, including 23 children at a nursery before killing his family and himself. And that was before we got to the explosion in Creeslock, which emerged as a major news story over the last couple of days. That's just this week, Right? And on top of that, there's like the big picture things going on in the background, war in Ukraine, refugee crisis, etc., etc. It's why so often we feel this sense of compassion fatigue, don't we? Like when we can't take it in anymore. I'm just overwhelmed now. Compassion fatigue. And the reality is we look at the world and we know it is not all it could be or the way it should be. There is a type of mourning that looks at the world and knows that it's not all the way it should be. 
And in so doing, we long for something to change. We long for the kingdom. And in the meantime, we mourn. We read the account of Jesus weeping over the coming fall of Jerusalem. It's Jesus' brokenness and burden uh, about Jerusalem in Luke 19 as a prime example. The fourth century writer Ambrose of Milan called this kind of mourning prudence, okay? That's how he termed it. And he defined prudence like this. He said that prudence weeps for this transitory world and sighs for what is eternal. Or the contemporary writer Richard Rohr, he said it like this. In this beatitude, Jesus praises those who can enter into solidarity with the pain of the world and not try to extract themselves from it. Mourning like this is a part of the biblical story. Mourning over the world as it is, because it is not all that it should be. We mourn beyond our lives, beyond the transitory of this world. We mourn towards a world made all things new. So there's mourning from loss. There's mourning for the world as not all as it should be. And then the third type is called mourning from sin. And this type of mourning was for 13 centuries, right? The only way that people interpreted this passage in Matthew, okay? This term of mourning. For 13 centuries, the church described it this way, right? Uh, And it's called penitence, okay? If you want the kind of main term. And in short, it's a kind of mourning that comes over us when we realize just how broken and sinful we are. It's the type of mourning that we feel whenever we realize just how broken we are. Now, I realize in this day of age that talking about sin is not a particularly popular thing in, uh, in a world in which, you know, kind of believes that you just need to do whatever you want to be happy and all of that sort of stuff. We don't like terms like sin. But the truth is that for 13 centuries, this is how the church saw a kind of mourning. And so it's impossible for us just to, like, write it off because they saw it as essential for someone's coming to faith, right? To be able to receive grace in all of its fullness, somebody needed to acknowledge just how broken they were. And the overwhelming sense of God's goodness and mercy and nearness and beauty is matched only by our sense very often of our unworthiness of it all. And yet every move of God and revival seems to have been marked by this. Like look down through the various books that are written about revival, right? And throughout those books, you're going to read them and you're going to find incredible things, miracles, healings, the sorts of stuff you're like, yes, revival, come. But what also marks them? Deep brokenness, deep, deep brokenness about sin. And whilst now most scholars recognize that Jesus was actually speaking to a whole host of experiences inside the term of mourning, and not just this, it's clear that this is still one of the ways that we are called to mourn. The writer of the book of James, he wrote it like this, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail, Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God and he will lift you up. Here's the thing. This idea of mourning our sin might seem a bit old-fashioned in the world in which we live. But just listen to what James says. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. Why is that good news? It's good news because shame is one of the worst things in our world, isn't it? Shame is one of the worst things in our world and in our lives. Shame taints and it stains, it cripples us, and it makes us better. Shame is a prison in a sense. Jesus is saying, mourning from sin, repentance. 
is a way in which you encounter his forgiveness, his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. That no matter how deep and how bad we feel, no matter how aware we are of our sin, there is a love and a grace which reaches further still. I love that line in that Phil Wickham song, A Thousand Names, when it says, I call you bondage breaker because you're handing out the prison keys. And I want to tell you today that that's what penitence can bring. That there is no sin deep enough. There is nothing you could do to be too far away and to be too much outside of the goodness of God. There's nothing. It doesn't matter how far you go, how deep you might plumb into just how broken you are and how aware of it you might become in your life. There is nothing. There is nowhere you can go. There is nothing you have done that would be greater than the grace of God as it comes to you today. The thing is, for much of the church's history, they saw this as kind of an expansive thing, right? Where to be penitent was expansive. Like it would draw you, therefore, into mourning for the world, okay? Like it would take, as you repented of your own sin, that it would draw you into the sins and suffering of the world and you would seek God to move in those too. But actually, I think in the world in which we live now, it often works in reverse, Often I think that we see the injustice and the pain of this world because that's the way this world is oriented towards now, towards justice and equality and things like that, right? And so very often what we feel first is the injustice of the world in which we live, the pain, and we mourn it. For example, a high-profile murder or something like that that's happened. And so we mourn the sin and the brokenness that caused that murder. And that mourning leads us to mourn the conditions of that pain, the racism, the conditions that person lived in, the brokenness in their lives, the system that let it happen, and then we end up taking a good hard look at ourselves and realizing that after all, I'm not so high and holy and beyond capable of doing wrong things too. And now I stare my own sin in the eye and I mourn for it. You ever had that experience in your life? You ever been vocal, for example, about the racism of the world and then ended up staring at your own? Been vocal about the pride or the greed of this world and then ended up staring your own greed in the face. Or sexual sin or whatever it is in your life. Here's the thing. So often in this life we want to rush past the pain of our mourning, whatever kind it is. Like we want it to be over, right? We just want to be over it. I just want to be better. I want to feel happy and normal again. I don't want to feel the way that I do. Like we just want to be over it all. We, we, see, we don't see any purpose in it all, right? But I want to say to you that if that's you today, nothing is wasted. Not even your pain, not even your mourning, not even your grief. Nothing is wasted. Don't rush past it all. In Nehemiah 1, okay, um, a way to understand Nehemiah's job, he was the chief cupbearer to the king, which in some ways it's easy to understand it as like chief civil servant, right? We kind of get what that means. Like he was the guy that was kind of next to the king, confidant, helped him make decisions, kind of helped those decisions be ruled out, right? It was a key role, okay? So he's chief civil servant to the king. And he finds himself with people from Jerusalem standing before him. His family are from there, but Nehemiah has never actually lived there, right? As far as he is known, he's only ever lived in Persia, okay? He's lived there his whole life. And he asks these people from Jerusalem how Jerusalem is, and they tell him that it's in ruins, like it's destroyed, it's burned, the gates are destroyed. These people are in disaster, right? They're broken, and it's devastation. And then I want you to see how he responds. This is what it says. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, 
Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses and on. He goes, here's what I want you to see. His brokenness and his mourning. For some days, I mourned and I fasted. You see, he hears about the brokenness of his people. And what's the first thing he does? He doesn't like rush past it just to get to the conclusion. The first thing he does, for some days, I mourned and I fasted. And then look at how he prays, right? He doesn't pray for their brokenness and their sin and their messed upness, right? It's, he includes himself. We have. We have sinned. We are broken. The NIV translation even says, okay, uh, including myself and my father's from. He never lived there. But it's not their sin. It's my sin. This is the beginning of the calling in his life. See, what we often tell is the story of Nehemiah, right? The rebuilding of the walls. We like that bit, don't we? Especially whenever we're like church building projects and things like that. And we need to raise a few quid. We're like preaching Nehemiah for a few weeks. Look how he built walls. We're going to build. You know, you kind of do that, right? Where does it start? Here. Morning is the beginning of the calling. This life-giving thing that would unfold in his life, how people could be formed again out of brokenness. It starts with his mourning. It starts with his mourning. And this beatitude, first and foremost, is about mourning. There's three types of mourning. Mourning from loss, mourning that the world is not all that it should be, and mourning from our sin. But also, there's three kinds of defiant hope. And so the second thing we're going to look at is defiant hope. And I want you to hear that I'm trying to say this as sensitively as I can today, right? I hope you're getting that. Because my experience in life is that the only other thing you can be sure of as a Christian walking through grief and mourning other than the pain are the platitudes of the well-meaning Christians, right? Like, it is, if you're going through a difficult time, you're like, just please don't send me another Bible verse, right? Please don't send me another one, right? Because sometimes it all becomes a bit much. And the platitudes that you get hit with by well-meaning and well-intentioned Christians, just a few of my favorites, okay? Let go and let God, right? I want to let my fists go in a minute, right? But let go and let God. That belter, okay? God won't give you more than you can bear. Really? Seems to me the Bible's full of people getting more that they can bear, okay? When God closes a door, he opens a window. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> and my personal favorite, you're going through a hard time, guys. A Bible that's falling apart belongs to someone who isn't. <laughs> Platitudes, right? Platitudes. And the thing is, when we're in pain... And we were walking through stuff with people who are in pain. We are so very tempted just to wash over it with platitudes. Just to like meet it with just a one-liner that you think will make it all better. But it won't. And it never does. 
And the, the, the pandemic felt like it was the worst time in living history for platitudes, okay? As I made my, through what, my way through what most people who I really respect who've been in pastoral ministry for a long time described as the worst period of pastoral ministry that they have ever been through, right? As myself, a young pastor who doesn't know what he's doing, right? Going through this really, really difficult time. All I got were all these messages from people telling me to rest, right? The Lord is telling you to rest. The Lord is telling Are you joking me? I've never been so stressed in my entire life, right? Rest, you just need rest, just rest. Like, no. And we're tempted to meet the pain of mourning with platitudes. Or we're tempted to meet it by just playing hiding and burying our, burying our heads in the sand. We have that conversation with someone who begins to unpack about the difficulties in their life and you just like look down and look at your feet, right? We're just uncomfortable by it all. And then we're tempted to try and rush right through it. But the message of the Bible is as sure and validating of the discomfort of mourning and weeping as it is about the comfort that is available right through the middle of it. It's as sure of the fact that we're going to mourn and as validating of those feelings and those expressions in your life as it is about the fact that there is comfort available right in the middle of it. And the idea Jesus is getting out of comfort, okay, is not just um, sweatpants and a whole tub of Ben and Jerry's, right? I know that that's where lots of people go with when they think about comfort, right? It's not that. It's deep and it's restorative. Jean Davenport defines it as this, the strength to endure the ravages of the darkness without bitterness or despair. I love that. In the morning times, it is the strength to endure the ravages of the darkness without bitterness or despair. While C.G. Montefiore comments that it's more like consolation. He says comfort is more like this biblical idea of consolation, which is to make whole or sound, to repair an injured spirit or a broken faith. That's the kind of comfort that we're talking about here. So where do we find it? Well, as a word of warning, some of the comfort that we find in the work of Jesus in our lives through mourning will take time, okay? Some of you are here today and you're thinking, great, yeah, yeah, right. Sounds like great, you know, good, you know, comfort sounds good. But I'm still in pain. I still struggle. I still have difficult days. And that's okay, all right? Because some of these things will take time. These are things, there are also things that we don't see now, but one day we'll understand a little more. And there are things that in this life we still won't ever see in full until we are restored on the other side of heaven. But there are some ways to know this comfort now, right? It's not just a cop out to say like, well, in heaven you'll feel better, right? It's to say that there's comfort that you can know now. Three kinds of comfort, three kinds of defiant hope. And the first of these is forgiveness. The first kind of comfort we can know in this life is forgiveness. And this is the obvious outworking of mourning our sin, okay? That the good news of this life is even better than the bad news of your life. And the good news is that there is nothing in your life that can't be redeemed, nothing that is beyond the reach of God. The picture for me has always been that picture of the father in the story of the prodigal son. That sense that after all he did, the wishing that the father was dead just to get the money and then to go and squander it on a life that looked nothing like a good life or a wholesome life or a life full of good decisions or choices, right? A life that went a long way off, humbled itself and made itself back, made himself back towards the father. And as he does... What does the father do? The father sees him coming from a long way off and he comes running. I want you to know 
that there is comfort here beyond any kind that you have ever known. I want you to know that if you're here today and you're feeling convicted of your sin, that there is stuff bubbling up in you, that you realize that you really are very broken, that you realize that there really is stuff in your life that you need to turn from, I want you to know today that there is a grace and a comfort and a forgiveness here like none you have ever known. The Father comes running. There is no need to live in shame. You can find him here today. The first type of comfort, the first type of defiant hope is forgiveness. The second is presence. The second type is presence. And the interesting thing is that the word that Jesus uses for comfort, okay, parakaleo, it is in the same family, okay, of words as one of the names that we give for the Holy Spirit. We spoke on it on our series in the Holy Spirit, paraclete, the comforter. In other words, the one of the works of the Holy Spirit in his coming to you is comfort. It's comfort. We are promised it when we are infilled by the Holy Spirit because that is who he is. And this is a great mystery, okay? I want to say from the outset that this sense of comfort in the presence of God in painful times, it's a great mystery, right? How even in the midst of mourning and grief and pain, so many people in my life have attested to knowing the presence of God somehow right in the middle of it. In the worst times, the sense of knowing God's nearness, knowing his presence, knowing his comfort of the Holy Spirit. Actually, if I'm honest, very often in my life, I find the hardest times to really know the presence of God are in the good times. But in the painful times, somehow he is close. That the comforter might meet us at our point of greatest need. Uh, My mom died around two years ago. And uh, it was such a very painful experience uh, for me personally. I'd never known a pain like that. Other people in my life have died along the way and they've been painful. But in some ways the loss of a parent is a really ungrounding thing. It's a very destabilizing thing. And I felt all of those things. And yet I found myself being broken, not just by the pain that I was feeling, but actually by the work that God seemed to be doing in me through that time. Time and time again, I would find myself in the kitchen in our house listening to music or whatever, and I just found tears again and again. Those of you that know me know that I'm not a crier, right? My wife makes up for most of that in our house, right? But I am not a crier, right? I never really have been a crier. And maybe in some ways there was something bound up in me that needed to be broken. But whatever happened throughout that period of time, and actually it didn't come as very often as I thought about the loss. It just came. Like I often thought people thought I was some sort of basket case as I rode the bus into Belfast, as I'd be like looking out the window and just broken, just broken where I am. And it happened again and again and again. And I found the tears were a gift. And that gift hasn't gone away. And I have known the comfort, the presence of God through something that I was not before that very painful experience. There is comfort in presence. I've known in Joy's life as well uh, that there's a difference I know in her whenever she's either crying or when she's weeping. And I've often come to recognize that in her life that at times when God has moved her to weeping, weeping nearly always seems to come before the change. Nearly always God seems to do something in her marked by weeping and what seems to happen next is action and change. We can know presence in our pain. Somehow this great mystery of how God seems to be close to the brokenhearted, not just to the repentant. 
you can know presence. And that's the second type of defiant hope. And the third type is purpose. Purpose. Forgiveness, presence, and purpose. And sometimes our mourning is the beginning of a purpose being unearthed in us. It's what we were unpacking in the life of Nehemiah. It's what we see in our world. Just about every social justice movement has started with some kind of mourning that has happened, okay? Whether it's like a small local expression to meet the needs of homelessness or addictions or whatever, or it's like a huge global charity. It nearly always starts with some form of mourning that the world is not all that it should be. And that mourning drives people to their knees and then to find purpose and then the that eventually the kind of work gets ruled out afterwards. It starts with a deep sense of mourning. And it could just be that there are some of you in the room that are very familiar with that thing. People that work in some areas of life which is very much felt like the response to a mourning that has been unearthed in you at the pain and suffering of people in our world. Maybe today is the day. Maybe you feel it right now. You carry a burden for something. Maybe that burden is the beginning of a purpose in your life. But on an even simpler level, our mourning, our grieving, and our pain should not lead us away from each other. They should lead us toward one another. Our mourning leads us towards one another. And the Bible is full of references where that's exactly what especially Paul writes to the churches. So to the church in Rome, Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And then to the church in, uh, in Galatia, Paul writes in Galatians 6 to carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill, fulfill the law of Christ. And then on into the Corinthians, he'll write in 2 Corinthians, praise be to God the Father and Lord of Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. There's that presence bit. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. In other words, our pain and our mourning doesn't lead us away from one another. It leads us toward one another. Again and again and again, it seems that the call on the local church is to be a people who share in the mourning, grief, and pain that we each suffer. The thing is, though, that as he writes to the Corinthians, very often it is our pain and our mourning and how God is working through it, which is the thing that actually reaches others. Sometimes I think, you know, that we, we think in the church that it's just if we could be slicker, right? We'd have a better website, better Instagram. You know, if we were just really cool, we were really great at what we did. We had better coffee on a Sunday and the worship team was better and the preacher was better and everything just looked better, that, that we'd somehow reach people more effectively. That's not what I find in any way, shape or form. It is not our intelligence or our competence or our quality that reaches people for Jesus. In my experience, it's our vulnerability and our weakness that is our greatest strength. It's our vulnerability and our weakness that draws us to one another, not our strength. We can like celebrate and celebrity people who are strong, right? But the people you really want to be close to, the people who are vulnerable with you, and the people you feel you can be vulnerable with. It's our vulnerability, it's our mourning, it's how we stand beside and comfort those who are mourning too. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord's close to those that are broken. It's why as Lydia prayed this morning for the people of Christlock this morning, we can be sure that the Lord is there because they're brokenhearted. And where the brokenhearted are, so too will he. When it came to my mom's funeral, um, 
we were in the middle of lockdown, so it meant family only. And so we did a small thing with just my family in my mom and dad's house. Uh, but when we came to take the coffin from the house to the car, then to take it to the graveyard, what we found, my, my dad was the leader in a very large church. And um, this was obviously quite a high profile thing, the death of his wife, um, which had happened really quickly. And what we found when we came out the doors of the house was that people had come to stand at the side of the road. And it's a couple of miles from our house to the graveyard. And essentially, for just about all of that distance, people stood at the side of the road. It was one of the more humbling experiences of my whole life. And for whatever reason on that day, some of you that were there that day are in this room today. But for whatever reason that day, there is one person whose face sticks in my mind and will forever be the image of comfort in my life in those days. Natalie Graham, who comes to this church, she might be here today. She'll be mortified if she is, but... I have this image of her at the side of the road in her scrubs because she works at a hospital having probably come from work or going back to work standing at the side of the road and she blows a kiss to us in the car as we go by and I don't know why but on some profound level within me in the hardest moments of pain in my life that simple act of just showing up and sharing in our grief and sharing in our mourning and standing at the side of the road In some way, I met God in his comfort just through that simple act. We share in the work of God as we show up and mourn alongside one another. This church is not just here for the good times in your life. I want you to know that today, right? I recognize that this church has grown lots over the last six months. And you may well be one of the people that have been here for a while and you're thinking, oh goodness, I don't know anyone anymore. And like, you know, how are we ever going to get to know everyone? You're not, okay? That's the bottom line. But I want you to know if you're here today, this church is not just here for the celebrations and here for the, the like highlight reel stuff. It's not just here for the glossy photos and the nice things and the wedding days and all of that stuff. We're here for the difficult times too. We are here to walk alongside you and walk with you in the most painful times of your life. I don't just count that as my job. That is all of our job. We are the body of Christ and we are called to comfort those who are mourning. We are called to weep with those who weep. And in our vulnerability, there is strength. Here's the question today. What can your tears bring? What can your tears bring? As tears swell in your life for things that are going on in the world, for the loss that you experience, for the loss that others experience, for a world that is broken, for your own sin, the question is, what can your tears bring? What can your weeping bring? What can your mourning bring? What change can your mourning bring into being? How can our mourning and our standing with others as they mourn do any good? Jesus says that it's the way of blessing and it's the way that we can see lives changed. Nicholas Wolstersdorf, just as I wrap up, he was an American philosopher and a theologian. And at one point along the way, he lost his son. His son died in an accident. He actually wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And he wrote this about what the second beatitude means and what the second beatitude might do, not just in his life or any life, in your lives and in this place. This is what he wrote. The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day and who ache with all their being for that day's coming and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace there is neither death nor tears and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries.
The mourners are aching visionaries. We say very often in this place that we are here joining with God and others in the transformation of Belfast. And that's a vision, right? And I think very often we occupy that vision with stuff we're going to do, ways we're going to go, right? We want to go, go, go. We're going to do all these things and all that sort of stuff. That's great. I mean, I'm on board with all of that, right? Of course I am. I want to see us do all this stuff, right? But what if the way that we somehow tap into what God wants to do here in Belfast is through our morning? What if what God wants to do in us is make us aching visionaries for the world as it may one day be? Not just good ideas, visionary ideas born through mourning and pain as we bear with one another and the pains of this world. We are the ones who dream that it might be another way. And pray for that and go after that and long for that. That is us, the aching visionaries. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted.